Hello and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. And one final announcement, we are very excited to offer the Wild Heart Labor Day Weekend Loving Kindness Retreat at Heartwood Refuge in Hendersonville, North Carolina on September 3rd through the 6th. If you'd like more information about this retreat, please visit wildheartmeditationcenter.org and click the events tab, or you can sign up and learn more at heartwoodrefuge.org. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. I want to go through uh, the fourth noble truth now. And the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path. So this eightfold path is the prescription to end suffering. And it's divided up into different sections. There's some wisdom factors. There's some ethical factors. And then there's some meditation factors. It's kind of like looking at the worldview and how we work with the world, trying to see things clearly with the, the first part of the Eightfold Path. And this first part is what we would call uh, right view and right intention. Those are the first two factors, right view and right intention. And then the Eightfold Path broadens out to ethical factors that we figure out that how we act really affects whether we suffer or not. So we do want to look at our actions. And our actions, that we look at these factors of, of our right speech, right action, and right livelihood. You know, what we say. I've suffered so much over some of the things I've said. <laughs> right action. What is our, our conduct? And I'll get into that more deeply, what we call the five precepts. Right? It falls under this. And then what we do for a living, what, what jobs we do, is under this ethical factor. And then the last part is this cultivation of, of meditation. We look at effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So these are the eight factors of the Eightfold Path. And what this Eightfold Path is like the spokes on a wheel. I'm a tattoo right there. So it's a wheel rather than really a linear path. It goes around. And it's the idea that these spokes need to be working together. So if one spoke is off, your wheel is going to be wonky. So to review that view, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And these are the spokes that inform each other on this eightfold path. So I want to go into the first factor tonight. And the first factor is this, what we call right view. And just from the beginning, we're already brought into some confusion, right this word right, as if there's right and wrong, as if there's good and bad and like evil and virtue. And then we've left in this like black and white dialect of right and wrong. But that's not what this means. The Pali word for this is sama. Right view, samaditi, samaditi. So sama 
I like this word that Sama, um, a friend of mine, told me this is uh, more of a, a musical term. So Sama really means harmonious. So it's like a harmonious view. Are, is our, are our views in harmony with the way things actually are? And then there's also this idea that right could mean like appropriate. Do we have the appropriate view of the way things are? Do we have the appropriate view that leads us away from suffering? And which is a harmonious view tends to be what leads us away from suffering. And another thing, now we're left with view. What do we mean view? This word DT. View, sometimes we get is belief. And if you're anything like me, beliefs get me into a lot of trouble. I believe I'm this way, I believe that person's that way, I believe this sucks, I believe that's great, I believe, I believe, I believe. But really, we, if we want to see what things are, it's more like the view, like the world. Are we seeing the world clearly? Is our view in line? Or is our view harmonious with the way things are? And so as this is the first factor of the Eightfold Path, I, for me it's the fucking toughest. To see things clearly... Because as humans, we're like born into this world, like we're in the womb, and everything is taken care of. All the food's taken care of, we're huddled in, we're, we're close and bonded with our parents. And then we're hoisted out into the world. This quite first trauma you're going to experience, being born, just, you're out. You're bombarded with the senses, Oh, sights and sounds and feelings and oh, what the fuck is this? And you're trying to make sense of it. And now you're you're trying to breathe. What the fuck is that? Like you're you're just fighting for your life. And you're trying to make sense of this life as it's hoisted at you. And we're born so young relatively to other animals. And so while we are in this life that just is just hits us so quickly, how do we make sense of this? And even in those first moments and first years and first months and weeks and all of that, we are developing a view of the world to try to make sense of this wild-ass thing of being born. And then we live in that view for a really long time. And it's the, the joke, not joke, that I say all the time. One fish turns to the other fish and says, wow, the water's really nice today. And the other fish says, what the fuck is water? <laughs> we are swimming in our views. We don't, what the fuck is a view? I don't know what that is. And so we go through life with these views. And then we go through life, and then we get hurt, and then we try to make sense of that hurt. We get let down, we get heartache. We have success, and then we have failures. And then we're trying to make sense of any of this. I remember in points in my life where I know, I was like connecting the dots. I know that changed my view of the world. When I was like seven years old, my parents got divorced. And then they did the best they could. My father was an alcoholic, my mother was codependent. And they were trying to make it work. And they, they did, and, and I love and respect them. And, but at certain points, my mom was trying to find ways of taking care of me while working and being busy. And she had me play sports 
<laughs> I remember I was, wasn't into it, but I didn't have any place else to go. And I had this coach that was just so mean to me. He thought he could be so mean to me, maybe I'd get excited about football. <laughs> and he would yell at me and yell at me and grab me by the face mask. And he was just really inappropriate things now, but his intention was to get me excited about something. And I just wasn't. And every day I just dreaded going to whatever practice that this coach was at to yell at me and try to get me to act right or try to get me to be respectful and just yell at me and yell at me and yell at me. And now it's just like, ooh, that's kind of lingering. I remember a few months ago I went to get a COVID test and I pulled up to the testing center and I rolled down my window to get the paperwork from the person working and I had this reluctance and I was like almost feeling like that. Like I had this reluctance thinking they're going to be mean to me because I have that view. This person's going to be mean to me. This person's going to hurt me. This person's going to yell at me. This person's going to grab me. But the person was actually really nice. And I was like, oh, I was just caught in that view. So what we can do with this view is just see it. Know a view as a view. Oh, that I have a fearful view of the average person. I don't need to defeat it. I don't need to hate it. I don't need to do anything special with it. I just need to see the water I'm swimming in. And I think over time, something does happen when we connect and bond with people, when we wish loving kindness towards people. Um, Over time, I think maybe that view does calm down, but we just have to be patient with it. So that's one sense of understanding view. That may be a more uh, modern way to look at view. That we want to know what view leads us to suffering and what view leads us away from suffering. So things like hatred or, or really this fear. Of course fear happens, but that irrational fear that leads me to hate. Hatred towards suffering. Loving kindness, away from suffering. Grasping. Some people have this this sense of like, don't leave me. Like me. I need you. That craving sense of you. That is the category that the Buddha put that under. Greed. Greed leads us towards suffering. Very simple. Generosity leads us away from suffering. We have this other view of like, Checking out. Ooh, not going to be this ignorance, ignoring. Ignoring ignorance, delusion, that category, towards suffering. Present time awareness, away from suffering. So the Buddha really made this really, like, clear. Suffering or not suffering. And it doesn't mean good or bad. It means that this is the process. If I want to cultivate, as I say, cultivate Am I planting seeds of hatred or am I planting seeds of kindness? The fruit's going to be the fruit. I've had seeds planted of fear. Now I have fear fruit. Tastes like shit. <laughs> so I need to be planting seeds of loving kindness. So as we say loving kindness phrases for ourselves and others, 
That's the planting the seeds. Hopefully that fruit tastes a little sweeter. So very easy the way the Buddha categorized the mind. Easy. <laughs> very simple, but very difficult, right? Because it's, I say this all the time, too. Don't we all have, like, somebody in our lives that we just hate? Like, everything about them sucks. The way they look is stupid. The way they dress is awful. The music they like, like is terrible. The way they talk, oh. Their friends are guilty by association. Just everything about them is bad. That's obviously not true. There's no one person that everything about them is bad. It's just we have the lenses on. Our hater lenses are on. So we need to know, ooh, hater lenses are on. And then we have the other end where we develop some sort of obsession about somebody, a crush on somebody, idealization of somebody. Everything that person does is awesome. They're so great. They're so wonderful. They're so adorable. The way they walk is so sexy. The way they talk is so hot. Well, because we have these lusty lenses on. So just noticing that that person take shits too. Um, so what we want to do is have loving kindness lenses on. That's different. That's different than lusty lenses. That's different than hater lenses. Loving kindness lenses actually let us see in that indiscriminate way that we can be kind towards pain. We can be kind towards pleasure. So we can see it all very clearly. So that's like really the question, why be kind? Why be kind? Because kindness leads to clarity. It's not some moral thing about kindness good. It's, it's, it leads to clarity. If you're indiscriminately kind, you can see all corners of this without pushing and pulling. So that's the view we want to develop. And once we start developing this kind view, these deeper insights and understandings start to unfold. What the Buddha taught as right view, first things first, karma. Understanding karma is right view. That's the simplest. Let's start there. Let's understand karma. Karma, for us, confusing word. 2,600 years ago, the, the Buddha decided to do this fun thing, was repurpose words that people were already using. So 2,600 years ago, now, we're left with, what is karma? Because somebody says this is karma, somebody says that is karma. Well, he probably should have come up with another word. This idea of karma is a Sanskrit word that means action. We have karma, and then we have vipaka, is outcome. Action and outcome. Sometimes we look at karma as some metaphysical game, like, like somebody is looking over us and planning our lives out, whether we're a good boy or a bad boy, and like, ooh, you're bad there, so your house is going to fall apart. Or you were rude to that person, so your car is going to break down. And then we go, oh, that's my karma, and my car broke down because I was rude to this person. That's not how this works. That's not a clear view. Karma is just the understanding that there is momentum. What you practice, you get better at. And we look at the karma of the body, the karma of speech, and the karma of mind. And this really, as I said, the Eightfold Path works together. So understanding karma informs our 
actions of our body, which means our ethical actions, that we commit to non-harming, that we don't want to kill anything, we don't want to intentionally harm anything. We commit to not stealing, not misusing our sexuality, and not taking intoxicants. And this is our commitment to see that we don't want to live in negligence and harm, because that leads to the suffering. Where is the suffering? It's in our mind. So what we do with our body, what we do with our speech, really affects how our mind is. And so there's the outcome of our actions that lead us to agitation. If we act in harmful ways, if we steal, I remember some of the things I sold so long ago. It's still there. I still don't feel good about it. And it's lingering there because that karma is in my mind. But if we act in generosity, if we act in generous ways, it's like, ooh, kind of a smooth mind, kind of a uh, delightful mind. Because there's something naturally in humans that, uh, that is pro-social. We are bonding creatures. We collect, we get together, we work together. And that's our main survival strategies, is working together. While other animals can fly and dig holes, we work together. And so if we can tap into that natural human tendency to take care of each other, our minds will be free. But if we hurt somebody in our community, that kind of feels like death. It's like, ooh, because being with community is survival. If we hurt what we're surviving off of, it feels terror, as it should. Good, good. That's the beauty of guilt, you know? When you do harmful things, it hurts. It's like, great, good, that's nice. Not, not to punish yourself, but, you know, just listen to that feeling. So, Understanding something as simple as actions have outcomes. That if we say loving kindness phrases towards ourselves, the outcome will be the mind will think naturally loving kindness phrases. If we, you know, really anything we do, we get better at practicing guitar, we're going to be a better player. Um, you know, just anything. We're learning to ride a bike. These actions have outcomes. Sometimes that's hard to understand that very simple concept based off of our view. A lot of us feel like we can get away with something. But karma is the acknowledgement you don't get away with shit. Everything you do has a ripple effect. If you steal this, you're going to get really good at stealing. If you're giving, you're going to be really good at giving. But sometimes it's hard to see. Um, I heard, who's the teacher? George Haas. I don't know if anybody's heard George Haas talk before. He, he applies like, a lot of like, um, attachment theory with dharma. And I'm going to trust him on this, and hopefully I can uh, relay this message that I heard from him. He said, when we're children, back to the childhood thing, when we're children, we're so uh, reliant on our parents and caregivers because we're born so relatively young. We can't really do anything on our own, so we have to have some sort of bond and trust with our parents. And how we do that um, one, being cute. If we're cute, and we go, oh, we're cute, looking at our parents, they like, they like that. They go, oh, let me give you what you need. If you need affection, I give you affection. If you need food, you need food. So you're cute. Okay, I care about you. And that child learns, oh, if I'm cute, I can get what I want. Or, or we cry. 
The child cries, and the parent comes and says, oh, no, the baby is crying. And then we learn, oh, if we cry, we can get what we want. And so over and over, we're learning that our actions have outcomes. If I am cute, I get what I need. If I cry, I get what I need. And so we learn that there's some kind of order in life. But if the child cries and the parent doesn't come, the child cries some more. And if the parent still doesn't come, the child throws a huge tantrum. The child goes and makes these terrible sounds. And if the parent still doesn't come, the child has to reserve their energy. And the child reserves their energy by stopping and shutting down. I can't remember the statistic, but if this happens enough, the child will give up on having their needs met. And then that child grows up thinking that there isn't order in life, that there isn't outcomes for my actions, that I can't get what I want. So what we need to do is come back to the obvious. Oh, actions have outcomes. And what one frequently thinks about and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. If we start pondering and understanding karma in all of its forms, that everything is born of karma, that we, these bodies, are momentum, that a sperm met an egg and they came together and it grew and then it was born and then it was you and then this you is aging and this, this aging body is going to die and then it will continue. Now we, we want to ponder the beauty and significance of that aspect of the interconnected wovenness of action and reaction over and over again. That we are not separate from anything else. That's it. We are born of this action reaction. So that's the first view that we want to understand. And then the, the second view is what I covered last week. This is the superior view. This is the view that leads to full liberation. If we want to end suffering, here, here it comes. This is what the Buddha wants us to understand. And that is the Four Noble Truths. And while there's so many profound understandings of the Four Noble Truths and explanations of the Four Noble Truths, I just want to simply go through Four Noble Truths are this observation and this task on how to um, end suffering. So the first Noble Truth, this observation that there is pain and difficulty and loss in life. Haven't we all experienced it? And this first noble truth is, let's, let's all understand that we, we've all experienced this. It's a tough thing to admit, but haven't we all had some heartbreak? Haven't we all had some loss? Haven't we all had some sickness? Haven't we all had some death? Haven't we all been separated from people we love? And haven't we all been around people we don't like all that much? This is the acknowledgement that things like that happen in life. That the world is, uh, what do you call, disjointed. It's this word dukkha. Well, they said that dukkha is like uh, a, a wheel that's off its axis. And when you're riding in that cart, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And that life is a bumpy ride. Uh, we want to embrace that truth. Embrace your, your, your unsatisfactory qualities in life. Embrace pain, difficulty. Embrace loss. Not an embrace like, yeah, I know. When somebody dies, you don't go, yeah, 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 that's what life is like. You embrace the death with a heart of compassion. So you open up with a kind heart 
towards the difficulties. That's the first invitation of the first noble truth. The second noble truth is the true cause of suffering isn't all that terrible shit that happens. It's our relationship to it. So what the cause of suffering is, craving, which is repetitive, is the true cause of suffering. And what we are craving is for life to not be like that sometimes, to, for life to not have pain in it, to life to be better than it actually is. So the true cause of suffering is when we demand life to be something that it can't be. So when we embrace this first noble truth, we can set aside our repetitive craving. And this repetitive craving, this second noble truth, is this word tanha, which literally translates to thirst. So as an alcoholic, I can understand that one. I'm staying thirsty because I don't want to embrace what's in this heart. So I can drink and drink and drink so I don't know what's in this heart. But as soon as I embrace what's in this heart... I can let go of the suffering. And so that's the second noble truth. Craving for things to be different than they actually are is the true cause of suffering. Goes into craving for existence, craving for becoming something. I want to become that. I want to be this. I want to be that. Craving for non-existence. I don't want to live. I want to die. So craving for escape is the true cause of suffering. So let go. Let go of the craving, embrace the, the, the suckiness, and then as soon as you do that, the third noble truth happens, which is freedom, nibbana, nibbana, or nirvana, you'll hear nirvana a lot. Nirvana is like taken as like Buddhist heaven, that's what I heard when the band came out in the 90s, they were like, oh, that means like Buddhist heaven. No, Buddhist heaven is heaven, there is a heaven realm in, in Buddhism and Buddhist cosmology, so that's not true. Um, and um, I found myself wanting to go on a tangent about heaven. Just come back. <laughs> um, Nibbana really isn't supposed to be something so mystical. It's a, it's a cooking term. So it's like a, a boiling pot that's removed from its heat source is Nibbana. It's cooling off. So when we embrace that life has difficulties in it, and we let go of the repetitive fight of that truth, it actually cools us off. And while I do have some sense that there is a process of awakening, I don't think we can get there any other time but right fucking now. That it just, are you nibbana-ing right now? Is there a pain in your body right now that you're like, oh, 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 and then can you just embrace that pain in your body and just cool off? Let that pain in your body just be there. That's nibbana. That's awakening. That's the third noble truth. So we want to see how this process works directly. So that's the, the invitation that comes along with the third noble truth. Just see it for yourself. Go see. You can do it in this very moment. And those moments add up to our hot ship awakening. Right? And then the fourth noble truth is like right back where we're at. The fourth noble truth is the eightfold path. It's the path to end suffering which brought me to the beginning of my talk. So this, this, this uh, teaching is quite circular in all of its ways. It just keeps on going and going and going. One list leads to another list leads to another list. That's why I do these series. So next week you'll hear all about the next path factor, which is wise intention. Um, so I want to end it there.